load the plates and lift the weights And we are mates and weights are great And as of late we pontificate about the weights And make a podcast! Sumo is cheating! This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will <laughs> Okay, in that case I'm going to start introducing us um, Guys, welcome to Weekly Weights We're joined today by a special guest from the United States, Matt Domney it is an episode, but we don't, I think it's 114. Whatever episode it is, it's the episode that Matt has joined us. Um, and we are currently talking about our respective attire. Um, Matt, Matt came on the podcast on the condition that the boys were wearing no clothes. Matt, how, how much clothing are we wearing? Uh, less than none. <laughs> impressively little. <laughs> and have you considered maybe taking your shirt off yourself? This isn't all I'm actually, I'm actually not wearing pants. So oh, it, really? we're good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm always bottomless. Prove Can you it. Just stand up and prove it, please. Always bottomless. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. My screen was not wide enough for what I just saw. <laughs> so we will get to some serious discussion in this podcast. We're going to talk about the concepts of specificity and variability. So, Matt, is are you one half of the compound performance group? Is yes. that? Yeah, so it's me and Kyle Dobbs, yep. Yeah, so we've previously spoken to Kyle. We had a really interesting chat about like the idea of movement quality and powerlifting, how we define movement quality more broadly. So Kyle's good fun. Um, would you say you're the more serious of the two? Oh, 1,000%. I'm the more serious of the two. I mean, that's why like, I always run the, the Apex Potato hashtag. My Instagram picture is me uh, like, as a potato sitting on a throne of other potatoes. I'm the serious one of the group. Kyle's the one. I got to tame him down every once in a while. I mean, like, I don't know if you guys know what the the whole like thing with being named Kyle in the United States is, but like he punches holes in drywall all the time. Like he just chugs monster 24 seven. Like it's rough. Like Kyle's are just like, they're just, they're just built to be different than other everybody else is. And we have to do whatever we can to kind of tame him. Yeah. Aren't Kyle's like stereotypically the guys who wear tap out shirts and like listen to Limp Biscuit and shit. Like they're, Oh, angsty teenaging wrestling fans and stuff. We we had to send him an entirely new wardrobe because all he had was affliction and tap out shirts and like monster energy hats and like it was it was not good. We're like, dude, you can't go on Zoom calls looking like this. This is ridiculous. Yeah, you get you get that vibe from him. Um, yeah. So I actually did want to. Obviously, we'd like to hear a little bit about your credentials. I know you're actually a pretty strong lifter, but most importantly, I want to know how the apex potato thing came about. So can you give us a little bit about yourself, focusing on the serious stuff? For sure. Uh, so my name is Matt. I'm a strength coach. I work over at Compound Performance. I have been in the industry and I've been in, uh, in training and fitness since 2013. Um, before that, going into there, I was a, a kickboxer and a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu comp- a competitor, uh, competitor. And I trained in that from, for pretty much my entire life. So I started training martial arts and everything when I was four years old. Um, I trained up until I was 26. And then I kind of got out of that and got more into powerlifting. Um, when I was younger, when I was like 19 to 20, I was kind of building uh, strength and conditioning programs for athletes and just like working on other things with athletes as, uh, as well so that I could work on building a stronger team for my competitive Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu team that I was working with at the time. Um, after that, I during Bra- uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu match, I destroyed my right knee. So I had to go to physical therapy for a little bit um, and kind of got into like personal training from there because my physical therapist basically pulled me over to the side and was like, you don't want to do PT. It's going to be a boring job. You're going to hate it. You're going to just work with a bunch of 60 or 70 year old women that just don't listen to whatever, whatever you tell them to do. Um, if you want to work with people that are going to be fun, you're going to want to get into more like personal training or doing something like that. So I got into personal training after that. Um, 
trained from the time I was in, in 2013 to now. And, you know, here I am just Kyle happened to find me and pick me up at some point. And I don't know what I did to deserve it. I probably didn't really do anything. I just, you know, was in the right place at the right time. Well, considering his taste in clothing, his taste in business partners might also be a bit so-so, you know? It definitely reflects on his taste in clothing for sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty much the same level as that. It's not good. <laughs> so you mentioned all the uh, serious credentials. What about, mm-hmm. so how about the origin of Apex Potato? How'd that come about? So Kyle started calling me a potato on a podcast one time and he started referring to me as Mr. Potato Head. And then it just kind of grew in our group mentorship product, uh, our group mentorship that it grew. Um, I, everybody just started referring to me as a potato. Um, and then I was like, you know what? I'm, like, if I'm going to be a potato, I'm going to be the pinnacle of all potatoes. So I'm just going to start naming myself the apex potato. So it's my now, it's now my hashtag with everything that I'm looking to do it with everything that I do is just apex potato. I'm trying to get it to trend on social media and Instagram. I think it's going to get there. Uh, it's got like a couple hundred posts so far. Cause a lot of people that are in the groups just tagging apex potato and everything that they're, uh, they're doing now. And, uh, you know, it's just growing the way that I wanted it to grow. And I got to just find out all the, find all the other potatoes, kill them, absorb all their power and just become the one true <laughs> apex potato. So like my personal hashtag that I was using quite a lot was Burke methods. Yeah. And it's only caught on among my clients who are roasting me. So like if they nice. miss a lift and they're going to post it, they'll hashtag Burke methods. Burke methods. Yep. But there's, there's zero quality content with that hashtag on it. So if we have some listeners in weekly weights who do want to spread the Burke word, then yeah. let's get a bit of Burke methods positivity out there. You know, because Alex has trust the process, which is pretty fucking trite. There's like 48 million posts because of Joel Embiid, but that's cool. That's so lame. <laughs> that is pretty fucking lame. <laughs> that's so lame. Trust the, pro- trust the process. I got you guys. Yeah, that's just your excuse for not getting anyone better for like 26 weeks at a time. It's like, exactly. don't worry, bro. It's week 28 when things kick in. Trust me. <laughs> trust me. This is how you get it done. It's like when I was working in big box gyms and like I would see coaches that are like, well, listen, you got to work on this Turkish getup and it's going to take you about 15 weeks to learn how to master this movement. So just keep paying me until then. And when you get this done, you'll feel like a totally different person. Same kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And then you got to start on the other hand. That's the issue with the Turkish get up is. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you finish week 15. It's like, right, now we're doing the contralateral limb. And you're now you got to go left hand. Yeah. Um, nobody, nobody can do it. So we're going to talk, like I said, about specificity and variability. Um, and we're going to talk about it in the context of powerlifting. But I think it's a discussion that could probably be expanded to the way in which we think about lots of other things. But just so that the people listening know that you're not just some fucking like weak movement focused loser. Can you give everybody... I'm- can you give everybody your best lifts? I'm exactly a weak movement focused loser. I don't actually train or lift anything at all. I just kind of sit there and theorize about movement all the time. Um, actually, so my, my best powerlifting numbers in my last meet are like, I, I had a 227 kilo squat, 165 kilo bench, um, and a 270 kilo deadlift. Uh, I've since then decided to stop being small because I was a six, I was like six, three and 105 kilos. So I was like, and I like I've weighed in for my meet at a hundred kilos on the dot. So I was like really, really tall, uh, small for my, uh, for my height. So now I'm going up to the 120 plus weight class. Um, and now I'm looking at in, in, uh, in my next mock meet, I'm looking at putting up some, some pretty good numbers. Like I've hit, um, 165 on bench for four, like for multiple sets of four. So like I've taken all my numbers for like significantly higher just because I've put on more weight and size. Yeah. I think I've seen you repping 700 pound deadlifts recently as well. Right. So uh, 660. So three, three, 300 kilos. So I've, I've hit, I pulled 300 kilos for two recently. Yeah. That's dope. Yeah. Um, okay. So can you coach by Hanny Jazzarelli, right? Jazzarelli. Right now. Yeah. Jazzarelli. Yep. Jazzarelli. We had Hanny on the podcast. 
Yeah, we just, we called him Hanny. Um, and I might have <laughs> called him Honey once or twice as well, and he got weirded out by it, but that's cool. That's um, how I spell his name whenever I, said, whenever I DM him. It's just H-U-N-N-I. I'm like, hey, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on, please? All right. So let's talk about specificity and variability. Um, how can we sort of define these two, um, these two concepts? So when we're looking at th- something like specificity, what I'm defining specificity as is from a movement quality standpoint is anything that's going to replicate the competition movement, right? So this could be like still like still doing like a set of eight or 10, like competition specific bench presses, squats, competition stance, deadlifts, or anything like that in terms of powerlifting or uh, for like Olympic lifters, this would be like the, the classic Olympic lifts or anything like that, that actually replicates the actual movement that you're doing in the competition itself. Variability would be the opposite, where it's any kind of movement that doesn't really necessarily mimic that exact movement pattern, right? So, for example, if we're looking at a bench press, that'd be something like a big arch extended, like uh, like extended through the uh, through the thorax. We've got a big anterior pelvic tilt. We've got a le- we've got like nice tight leg drive. We've got scaps that are depressed, and we're looking at just arching like like arching as much as possible, so we can leverage extension to reduce range of motion and press as heavy as heavy a load as we possibly can. That'd be an example of a very, very specific movement, particularly with the bench press. With like a low bar squat, it'd be like a wide stance, externally rotated and abducted femurs, things that are just trying to reduce as much uh, range of motion as possible, probably hinging the squat a little bit. Those are just examples of specific movements that we're looking at doing in a competition. Variability-based movements would be things that are similar, so it'd still be like a horizontal pressing pattern or still a knee-dominant pattern where we're looking at uh, just doing things that do not replicate the comp stance or the comp position, right? So if we've got a lifter who's got a very large arch and they're very, very externally rotated through the, through the shoulders and we're trying to get them to like have a little bit more variability, I might put them in a position where they're, they're no longer arching, they're keeping their back nice and flat, and they're looking at actually starting to protract and reach their scaps up at the top so we can get a little bit of movement in the, uh, in the scaps and some actual internal rotation of the humerus. So we're just looking at things that are going like, to kind of swing the spectrum from one side to the other, of like super, super specific to the things that kind of replicate the movement pattern grossly, but do not replicate what it looks like on purpose so that we're not always consistently in the same pattern and position, which again, may not necessarily be a bad thing, just depending on where we happen to be um, in a meat prep, if we're a power lifter, for example, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. I'm sure I'm just looking over the, uh, the thing again. Um, but that's just what we're, what we're looking at for, for variability versus specificity. So something else that people talk about in specificity is also specificity of loading. So in the case of powerlifting, you know, the demands of doing like a heavy, a heavy single at competition loads mm-hmm. under competition conditions do differ from doing lighter lifts. In the case of the bench press, you know, there's data demonstrating differences in muscular activation between like submax and very heavy lifts. In the case of like the squat as a balanced task, it changes when the weight on the bar is really heavy as, as opposed to when it's light. And, you know, with the deadlift, like the demands and on back extension and probably your back positioning and things are also going to change a little bit at heavier weights. Does that also come into play when we think about this spectrum? Well, absolutely. And that's one of those things where if we're looking at building a training program for somebody, we get significantly more and more and we just, we kind of dial up the specificity as we get closer and closer to game day, right? So when we're looking at a lifter that's maybe like five, six weeks out, that's where we're starting to really introduce some like heavy singles on every single movement because we're starting to get close and we need to start training out how we're going to actually be be competing. So we're going to look to like, this is where like, I'll literally add like a three by one at ascending uh, percentages or ascending RPEs on a Saturday because that's usually the day that people are going to compete. So we want to definitely start increasing and adding more specificity in terms of loading as well as we get closer and closer to the event. 
Yeah, so I think, um, and certainly I was a little bit this way when I started learning about like sports science and coaching and things. I thought, well, there's this, there's this said concept, the specific adaptations to impose demands. And so you get good at what you practice. And if powerlifting is the practice of just lifting heavy, then why oughtn't I just do exactly what you said, do a few ascending singles on the competitions all the time? Like why would I need any variability in my movement or variability in loading to actually get good? So there's a, there's a difference between a direct carryover and an indirect carryover. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people are missing out on with this hyper-specific programming nowadays, right? Where if like we're looking at something that's it's a little bit less specific, but again, you're, 20, like you're 22, 26 weeks out of a meet, you don't need to be practicing specificity at this point because if we know, we know for a fact that if your quads get bigger, your squat will probably go up. So what we're going to do is we're going to look to practice a little bit more or train a little bit more variability in the movement here where they're looking at doing something that's going to target the quads a little bit more effectively than a low bar back squat, build up a little bit more quad hypertrophy and strength, and then use that as an ability to kind of re like to, so when they start training again with, with heavier load, we can kind of readapt and reintegrate their ability to, to produce larger amounts of contractile force with larger quads with better range of motion in this competition lifts, right? So it's one of those things where like, if we're just training heavy singles at all times, you're just kind of neurologically adapting to the load and we're not actually putting on any tissue, which is going to help increase your lifts as you're going through the movements. So something that, um, that yourself and Kyle, who in spite of everything, we still respect a little bit, um, have spoken about quite a lot in my presence is this idea of like, of capacity and output exercises yeah. within a program or like even just as, as a way of conceptualizing things. So could you kind of run, run through that delineation and how it might matter in a practical sense? Because it relates to what you just said. For sure. So what we're looking at when we're looking at building a, uh, building a program is the difference between like the capacity and output, which is exactly what you're talking about, right? So output, this is, this is going to be the thing where all I care about is the actual performance of the movement. So I care about total load. I care about bar speed. I care about things like that, like very objective measurements. I don't really care how it feels. I don't really care what it's going what it, to, like, what it looks like. I care to a certain extent, but we got to understand that over 85% of your max, there's going to be some technical breakdown anyway, and that's probably going to be okay. You'll probably survive and not be, not have anything to worry about like movement's not going to be perfect at all times and that's one of the things that i think a lot of people uh, a trap that a lot of people fall into is just this idea of movement idealism where it has to look exactly perfect at all times regardless of the effort that's being placed in or the percentage of the actual load and if there's any sort of fault at all we need to stop doing that and that's kind of what we're looking at with output training is I care a lot less about that kind of stuff. And again, what I'm looking at that with is I'm, I'm, look, I'm not looking to correct anybody on a heavy single. I'm looking to find faults that we can then address during capacity training to probably or to hopefully work on reducing those faults moving forward, right? For example, like if we're seeing somebody that like struggles in a squat and they, they kind of fall into like a, like a little bit of a, what a quote unquote like knee valgus position where their knees are kind of collapsing inwards, we might work on some stuff that are going to build up some more adductor strength and work on like building up a slightly closer stance to have an indirect carryover in like adductor, like Magnus hypertrophy and strength that may end up bringing up a little bit better of a, of a squat as they get back into their like competition specific movements. So I think that's one of the biggest things that, that we're, we're looking at with this, with their output style training is the output training that they do and the faults that they develop from their output training kind of determines what we're going to use the capacity training for. And what we're defining capacity as capacity is going to be any movement that has a repeatable effort component, right? So this is going to be like, we basically what we did, and this is going to like, it's going to sound super douchey what we did, but we basically just renamed accessory training, capacity training, because it looks cooler and sounds cooler. 
Um, so like, this is where we're the, but the reason why our, and what we do with it is a little bit different is because the capacity work that we're looking at doing, we try to make it non as non-specific as possible. Right. So again, if we're talking about that position where that, that lifter is in that big, that big arch and they've got the, they've got like a super max, uh, like a, like a max width grip on the bench press. We know for a fact that their like their humerus is probably not going to be even horizontally adducting that much at all, even at the top when they're locking it out. So for the chance, like for the chances of them to actually leverage pecs in that movement, it's fairly low. It's fairly small, and it's going to be a little bit more of like of a of an eccentric lever uh, leveraging anyway, because that's what's going to just the position that they're in, where their sternum is just expanded as much as possible, and they're getting that big, big, big stretch towards the bottom. Right. So they're not using they're not really going to be using much pecs on the way that on the on the contractile portion of the movement. So we're looking at doing with capacity stuff here. This is where I do something where like they're doing an incline dumbbell uh, incline dumbbell bench or like a flat dumbbell bench with their back totally flat and the focus of reaching at the top. So we can work on training the the more concentric position of the pec and the more shortened position of the pec so that they can eventually use that pec that larger pec muscle in their competition movement to press a little bit heavier load. So what I Again, again, correct me if I'm wrong. Kind of what I'm hearing is that is that we use targeted capacity work or I mean accessory work, which is something we've spoken about heaps, to build up overt weaknesses when people are really, really trying to put out as much work as they can. Yep. And whilst that stuff might might be um, might be considered non-specific or less specific when we look at it just purely through the lens of like competition lifting, it can actually be highly specific to their needs or the things that have a deficit in training. Or exactly. Later. So it's exactly it's highly thing, it's targeted work. It's just less overt specificity. For sure. And that's exactly what we're looking at. It's kind of like I talked about a little earlier with the difference between a direct transference and an indirect transference. And if we can get something that has an indirect transference that is going to put on tissue or build in movement or build up movement quality in an area that you don't have it and you lack capacity, that's probably going to help improve your capacity and your output, your ability to express your strength in your output work afterwards. What about the um, what about the trade off then between being very highly specific in the things we do and having that capacity? Like I presume that trying to be like Kelly Starrett, ultimate mover who can get into every position, might come at something of a cost, or at the very least, trying to absolutely optimize. Say in the case of your bench press, your ability to be really, really arched and retracted and have a very short range of motion. I presume that that also comes at a cost at the other end, which is what you were saying that your pec isn't, you know, say used to being actually concentrically oriented or shortened. You're not used to being in flexed positions and operating through a full range of A, B and A deduction of the humerus. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's exactly what we're kind of looking at doing with this and why we build programs the way that we build programs is because we're looking at trying to give a lifter the best of whatever they need at that specific time at wherever they are in that movement. Right? So if we're looking at like, just consistently getting into the same, like what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to get people to as middle of a ground as possible so they can leverage either end of the spectrum through extension or flexion as well as they possibly can. Right. So that's one of those things where like, if we're, if we're super good movers, like somebody like Kelly Starrett or like a lot of the FRC guys, and I know I'm going to piss a lot of people off with the FRC guys comment, but like, if you're looking at those people that have like these, these crazy ranges of motion, like those person, those people probably aren't very strong. Right. At all. So like what they're sacrificing at that end of the spectrum is they're sacrificing all output driven work for just sensory motor and capacity work. So they don't have any ability to express max strength because like they're PRing their, their controlled articular rotation because it's an RPE 10 today as opposed to RPE seven the other day. And it's like, well, it looks the same. And like, oh no, but I got a one more degree of internal rotation th today than I did last time. It was awesome. Trust me. Like I'm super stoked about it. It's like, well, 
I mean, that's really hard to quantify and really hard to, to, to create it or turn it into something tangible, like true, like output specific training would be where it's like, if you got, if you, if you ran a six minute mile today, and then in six weeks, you ran a five minute and tw- like 45 second mile, your output got significantly faster. Right. So what we're looking at doing with that is we're looking at using output training as a way that's very tangible and very trackable. And those people that are super, super on one end of the spectrum on the variability end usually end up losing that ability or don't train it as much so they don't have the ability to express output as much as they normally would. Whereas somebody with specificity who's just hyper, hyper, hyper specific, they probably end up losing out on a little bit of movement variability that probably doesn't allow them to train at an optimal frequency or train the way that they're looking at training because they're always going to just be leveraging the same positions constantly and accumulating a ton more fatigue on tissues that may be preventing them from training a little bit more with a little higher intensity. Um, I had one question about... What's so, your name again? <laughs> I'm, the, uh, I'm the silent partner. Oh, gotcha. Of weekly weights. So I actually so, have a question for once. Just for, for everybody, Will, told, Will DM me and he said that he was going to pay me if I just referred to Alex as what's his name for the whole podcast. <laughs> I was, was going to take that to the grave. I, <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't tell anyone, but yeah, that's awesome. I'm all about transparency here, buddy. <laughs> I like that. Um, <laughs> Um, so with most things in the sort of fitness world, there's a lot of overlap between sort of two camps. Mm-hmm. And obviously you mentioned um, capacity and output as the two camps that you're talking about here. How much overlap is there in those two camps? I mean, there should be a, like, there should be a decent amount of, of overlap because I think every, like at, the cer- at a certain point, like everybody's going to the gym to get stronger or get better looking. There's two reasons to go. Like I'm not going to the gym so I could PR my hip internal rotation. Like that doesn't mean anything to me. And that doesn't give me any benefit outside of the gym. Right. Where it's like, like that, and that's what I think a lot of people get lost, uh, get a, a lot of people can start getting lost when it comes to super, super, super uh, variable style movement is like they lose, they lose out on what it's like to be a meathead. And on the other end of the spectrum where people who are just training for output, just training capacity, lose out on what it's like to critically think about a problem. So I think that's like the, the, the overlap is if you're able to combine both, you can still be a meathead, but critically think about why you're being a meathead and why you're doing what you're doing. So I think that's where the out, like where the, the overlap needs to be. And I find that a lot of people, when they kind of like fall into these dogmatic camps, they totally lose out on that entirely because especially with the age of social media, everybody just kind of falls into this little tribal camp where they're looking at it and they can only speak to other people. Like if I'm a PRI guy, I can only speak to other PRI people because of the terminology and vocabulary that, I, vocabulary that I've gotten from this course. Same thing with if I'm an FRC guy, I can only talk to other FRC people. And we end up all falling into this little category that makes us kind of forget why we started going to the gym in the first place. I think there's something I'm going to express a couple of really bad metaphors to explain this, but like one thing to remember as well is like the people who are super duper just up their butt about like doing variability based shit and sort of giving you sensory motor challenges. It actually feels really hard. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like if you do things that are just challenging movements, like it feels challenging. So you feel like you've worked out, but like the, the mindset that you're talking about, which is productive, which is like the meathead who goes, you know, what can I learn about movement to actually enhance my training? That's like a similar mindset. This is where the metaphors get bad. That's a similar mindset to somebody who goes, I want to drive a fast car. So I'm going to learn a bit about engines and get like a fucking good engine to put in my car. So it goes fast mm-hmm. as opposed to the person who goes, I'm going to create like a really dope different type of engine that doesn't actually do anything better, but like, fuck, it's a different engine, which is sweet because I'm interested in engines. And that's like 
that's great, but it doesn't actually don't, doesn't actually apply to driving a car any faster. It's just now exactly. you know that engines, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I agree with that one hundred percent. I mean, like that's one of those things where. Like if you're trying to, if you're trying to build a better human, if, if you look at us from like an evolutionary standpoint, like we're hunters and to build a better human at a certain point, like you actually have to do human shit where you actually have to express like these, these abilities to do the things that you're trying to train for. And like, that's the biggest thing that like, that I keep seeing with all these people that are just totally variability based. It's like, well, okay, well, what's the purpose of any of that stuff? Well, like, well, I, did you see that? Like when I did that standing toe touch, I could get my head between my knees. It's like, okay, why? Like, why do you need to do that? Like, what's important about that? Like, well, I feel really good. It's like, no, you didn't tell me like why you need to be able to get to that position. How does that help you with anything else that you're looking at doing in your day? And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people lose out on is like the, the, they get lost in this pursuit of better for no reason where it's like what, like, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I identify with powerlifting or like any kind of physique sports so much is because your pursuit of better is extremely tangible. Where it's like if you do a bodybuilding show and a, and, a, and a judge says you've got like terrible biceps, like I'm just using myself as an example of what would happen if I got on, a, on, a, on stage, like you know what you're supposed to do to, to bring that part up, to do more with that. You're supposed to train a little bit more. You probably increase frequency. You increase your load that you're probably going to use and you train a little harder on your biceps to get them to grow a little bit more. Whereas with a power lifter, you missed your third attempt on bench. Okay, cool. I know I need to get a little bit stronger. I missed a squat for depth. I need to work on my range of motion, right? You have, you have a targeted plan that you can use to get better at whatever your chosen pursuit is going to be. Whereas if we're sitting there and it's like, well, what's the purpose of doing any of this stuff and how does it, how does it transfer over and carry over to anything else? That's where a lot of these people just don't have the ability to answer the question. And I think that's one of the things that we, like I was kind of talking about that we lose is the ability to just go in and be a meathead and just do something and work really hard. And like you said, it's like the, the, the people who are, who are doing that, like those movements are hard as hell. And I, I've done all of them and I have a lot of these three-letter acronyms and these three-letter certifications. And like, it feels like it's really hard work, but at the end of the day, it's probably just going to be noise that doesn't improve anything. Well, there's an audio clip that's going to piss some people off. Um, yeah. We'll circulate <laughs> that one. But no, I think I more or less agree with you just, you know, in my heart of hearts. I think there is some value to like, to exploring and understanding your body and stuff, but I don't Absolutely think get in the way of actually trying to get better at something either. Absolutely. Is. And that's the biggest thing is like, if we're looking at it in, in terms of like a specific, if we're looking at the said principle, like specific adaptations to impose demands, like break it all the way down. And like, what are you even going to train for? Like, why are you going in and doing all of this stuff? Is it a, or do you have a reason that's fairly specific that kind of carries over to what your training looks like? If not, why are you doing it? Well, let's take that and run with it. I like that. All right. I want to take a deeper dive into the concept of variability. Um, when I sent you this episode outline, I kind of wrote, I wrote like layers of variability that we can consider. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't mind sort of, as we rattle them off, just like, just seeing where they fit within this conceptual framework. So your, when we asked you to define specificity and variability initially, the, the first way in which you defined variability was, was to talk about movements that are in some way similar. You know, they are a squat like pattern, say for the squat, but they don't mm -hmm. resemble your competition squat. Um, is there a role for like just completely overt variation? So if you have a powerlifter coming in, would there ever be a time where you're like, okay, we're literally not going to do anything that resembles a squat for you? Or is there a time when you might look at the program and say, we need to get as much not squatting in here as possible for a reason? Oh, for sure. I mean, like this is one of the, one of those things where like, if we're looking at 
uh, taking on a power lifter who's like post meat and they don't have any kind of other competitions anytime soon, I might just totally remove a lot of the competition movements and give them a lot of machine work to just put on some tissue. Right. Like if I'm looking at a weight, cl- uh, like a lifter who's trying to like size up a weight class or do anything like that, like the barbell movements are terrible mass builders. So we're just going to pick movements that are going to do better jobs at getting them the ability uh, at building an environment that allows them to put on a little bit more tissue. Like for example, if they've got like access to a hack squat or a leg press or like a good pendulum squat or anything like, anything like that, they might still squat three times a week, but they're going to do a leg press, a hack squat and a pendulum squat, as opposed to a barbell squat, a barbell squat, and a safety bar squat. Like there's just better things that we can do that are going to allow them to think less, load more and work harder without having to worry about any sort of chance of kind of like messing it up and like ruining themselves in the movement. Sure. And that, um, that is actually one step more specific. <clears throat> when I ask that question, like I hate to lead people in their answers. I was thinking along the lines of saying to people, you know, we'll, we'll do some leg extensions and I want you to push a sled and run and stuff, but yeah. we're not going to do, we're not going to do anything that we could even broadly call a squat pattern. Do you think there is, do you think there's ever benefit to saying to people, Hey, we need to express, like we need to expose you to something that's completely outside the realms of specificity. Or is that something where you like the carryover is so indirect as to be not worthwhile mostly? I would probably say the latter. Like I would say that the carryover is so bad, is so small that it may not even matter at all. Like again, and this would be the kind of something we're looking at where if I'm looking at a lifter's previous training cycle and like their session, like their, 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 uh, time to complete a session for like 10 sets is like an hour and a half, two hours, three hours. It's like, okay, cool. You need to do some work capacity cause you're fat. So we need to do something that's going to get you to build a little bit more cardio. So your sessions are going to go a little faster, which will also probably help you recover a little bit better between sets. So you can have a little bit less time in the gym total. But again, like it's one of those things where we can do a work capacity block while we're doing a bunch of other stuff at the same time. So it's not going to be that that difficult to do. And I don't think I would ever totally ditch everything like that. Cause I just don't think the carryover would be anywhere near as beneficial as just combining and doing some more stuff. Sweet. All right. Well then let's dive into the more like variation within the movement category discussion. So you spoke about how, like in the case of hypertrophy training, we might choose to do a hack squat or, mm-hmm. or something of that nature that lets us better target the quads. What about the changes you spoke about, you know, how powerlifters might be more inclined to really hinge the squat, widen their stance a bit and things like that. In a practical sense, what is different about, and we'll use the squat as the example, because I think it's an easier one to conceptualize. What's different about that as opposed to a, an upright squat where the, you know, the torso displaces more or less vertically and there's a, there's a lot less hinging and things going on. We're in a bit less global extension. Why is that different and why might that be valuable? So what we're looking at here and what I'm looking at with this is kind of looking at uh, like joint ranges of motion and joint axes, right? So if you're looking at a low, like a hingy low bar squat where there's very little anterior knee translation, the joint axis is going to be the point that's the farthest away from the actual load itself. So because in a low bar back squat, you're kind of hinging it and you're driving the hips back a little bit more, the hips and like the pelvis is going to be the joint axis, which is probably going to bias a little bit more posterior chain work in the squat as opposed to more quad. Right. Whereas if we're doing a leg press or a hack squat or something like that, the knee then the knee joint then becomes the joint axis, which means that we're probably going to bias the quads a little bit more, which is the same kind of thing that we're looking at with a vertical torso versus an inclined torso. We're just looking at the 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 joint mechanics of the actual of the body as they're going through the movement to see what tissue we're probably going to be stressing more than we would otherwise. And again, this isn't to say that in a hingy squat 
you don't get quads. Like you're going to get some, but to the degree that you're not going to get the same amount of quads that you would on a hack squat, just because the amount of forward knee translation that you have to get in that movement. And as that, as that stuff sort of works up and down the chain as well, this is something that I've realized recently is like, you know, when I squat more upright or I warm up and do some goblet squats with my heels elevated and like a narrow stance and things, expressing that extra internal rotation at the hip, you know, having a little bit more pronation of the foot as I get deeper, things like that also seem to help my capacity to then go. And when I go do my proper competition squat to actually effectively, like say load my glute and, you know, hit depth comfortably and have a bit less compensation in that movement, because I think I'm stronger in, in the sort of little area of wiggle room around what my optimal movement would be. That's the narrative that I'm looking at it through. It's like, my ability to be strong in positions that are similar, but not the exact same allows me to be stronger in the, or more stable in the exact same movement and be more effective of a mover. Mm-hmm. And like, this one of the things that we're looking at is depending on the person's stance, right. In a squat, like I've seen you squat on social media and like you have a relatively narrower stance to begin with anyway, like your stance isn't overly wide with your feet pointing way out to the side. And like, that's a position where, keeping your squat like in, in that way that you kind of squat normally, like building up a little bit more quad and a little more adductor with a closer stance squat is probably going to have a little bit of a better carryover to you because you're still allowing yourself to go through a good degree of hip and knee flexion, right? Whereas if we're looking at with, without like the external rotation and abduction of like, if we're looking at like a, like just as a great example of somebody who's totally opposite, like a geared lifting, like West side style squat where the feet are totally turned out and the knees are to- the hips are totally abducted and externally rotated. Like in that position, if we're looking at that lifter training drills and training exercises that build more internal rotation of a femur might not necessarily have any carryover to their, their squat just because of the position that they exist in or a position that they have to live in. It's so non-specific to a narrow stance squat that it might not do anything for them. Whereas with somebody like you who has a slightly narrower stance to begin with, feet are kind of like five degrees out to straight forward, this is going to be an exercise that it's, it's going to be something that gives you a little bit more carryover because it's closer in specificity or it's closer in movement style and gross movement pattern to your competition style movement. What about... Um... Moving on, you, you kind of spoke a bit about this when you spoke about bench pressing and, you know, the role of maybe flattening the back and protracting and things to get you some more mm. abduction and get the pec concentrically oriented or shortened. Um, what about choosing movements that, that are similar but have variations in, like, the strength curves or the profiles, like where the sticking points and things are? Does having differences in muscular strain or where in the range of motion with strange, strain muscles have a practical benefit? I, I would, I would imagine so in terms of gross muscle development, but I don't know how much of a carryover it would have to an actual movement, like a bench press itself. Right. Again, it's one of those things where like, if we're looking at, uh, if we're looking at the sticking point of the bench, it's pretty much the same spot at every single time. And if we're overloading the top of the bench, I don't necessarily know if that's going to have much carryover to the bottom to where the people's normal sticking point is at the bottom. Right. It's the same thing where like, if we're looking at the like if we're just looking at that position, right? Like we've got uh, we've got a lengthened pec, we've got lengthened, uh, we've got like shortened biceps, lengthened triceps, and all those muscles are going to be in that kind of position where the most load is at that position. Where if we're starting to press through, we're looking at they're now kind of moving more towards a mid range, but still like still like getting out of that eccentric orientation towards a mid range. I don't necessarily think that like loading anything else or like changing the the strength curve 
would help those as much because it's just not specific to that to that movement and it might give you more tissue which might actually help you in the long run but again i don't know if that would necessarily be like a super helpful thing and that's one of the things with like a, a lot of accommodating resistance we're looking at that because if you're looking at like a lot of accommodating resistance came from west side right where like all of the people lift in a geared in like a geared fashion and like they lift in like the the squat suits the bench shirt bench shirts and everything like that but that totally changes the actual biomechanics of the movement itself, right? Like if you look at any of these West side lifters, like watch one of these guys bench a thousand pounds. Like it's super fast and easy off of his chest because the shirt is pulling the whole thing in and the hardest point for them and their sticking point is as they're getting closer to lockout, which is one of those things where I don't necessarily think it would have the same carryover to a raw lifter just because the biomechanics of the movement are different. Well, I think like with the squat, like we never see people doing like high, really, really high pin squats, for example, and expect it mm-hmm. to carry over. But for the bench press, for some reason, we see big boards and we see slingshots and stuff like that. And when it, there seems to be no sort of recognition that those are the same thing. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of thoughts and these are hectic spitball, don't take them too seriously level thoughts for the audience. I'm excited. And I'm sitting here in a fucking Borat swimsuit. <laughs> I'm surprised anyone takes anything <laughs> else. So, so with accommodating resistance, um, as opposed to short range of motion, something that like my observation in using bands, I've used bands on like a pendulum squat, but not on mm-hmm. my actual squat. And I've used bands a little bit um, playing around with pressing and I've used chains on deadlifts and stuff. But in the case of the bands, I think the fact that they create an overspeed eccentric, like they make the weight um, descend faster than gravity would have it accelerate. Um, I think that that has possibly some value in teaching people some control and stability mm-hmm. and in teaching them to actually, you know, load the muscles on the way down for the purpose of reversal strength. I think there might be something to that. How much utility it has might be very case dependent. I'm not sure, but I, I actually think that that is of more benefit to the lifter than than having to overcome extra resistance on the way up at the top, if that makes sense. No, I would agree with that too. And like, that's one of those things where what we're looking at is we're just looking at the, the accommodating resistance just trains the muscle in a different position. Mm. Where it's like, if, if we have a banded bench press, it, cha- it trains the muscle at the shortened position, which is just a totally different thing than the actual demand of a regular bench press. Same thing with like a banded pendulum squat or banded belt squat. You're now just training, like the hardest and the heaviest load is at the position where the quad is the short, is the most short. Right. It's the most shortened position of that muscle as opposed to like the regular barbell squat where the muscle is like the, the hardest and sticking point is at the lengthened position of the quad. Right. So you're just starting to train a different portion of the muscle, which, again, totally fine. And like you should probably end up doing both ends of the range of motion. It's kind of like I was talking about with like doing like a protracted inclined dumbbell press or flat dumbbell press to train like a shortened position of a pec. So like I could see some carryover with that, but again, I don't like in terms of like breaking through like a sticking point or a plateau, I don't necessarily know how much it's going to actually do that specific thing. Yeah, for sure. And then for my second spitball-y thing, which I think with even less conviction than that one though, was the, was overload work on bench. Cause as much as I have that thing where I'm like, oh, the rationale doesn't seem that sound. I see a decent number of people use it with, you know, some degree of success whether or not they would have more success doing other things, we'll never know because you can't like live the counterfactual. But possibly in the case of the bench specifically as well, it is because the demands of the lift do change with heavier weights and that that just literally gives them some chance to be exposed to a, you know, a really heavy pressing movement with weights that are relevant or, you know, or that do really train that specific quality. 
And I know in the case of the raw bench, like the triceps demands do go up quite a lot with heavier, mm-hmm. with heavier loads. And so possibly some top end heavy work does help build the tricep strength that is important for heavy benching off the chest, even though it doesn't actually get you in the sticking point. So it might be like, it might have that indirect benefit, but that's one of those things where I'm like, I'm trying to think of a reason for why this works because it seems to work a bit in practice. It just, it's either it's working in spite of itself or there's a reason I just haven't thought of it yet, you know? I would still say at that point, like, why would you just do close grip bench press instead? It's hard. Like close grip, yeah, I mean, close grip, close grip is really hard, but at the same point, like you're still getting that same kind of thing where we're moving the triceps through longer ranges of motion and they're getting more recruitment towards the top because it's a lot more elbow extension, right? Mm. So like, that's the same kind of thing where it's like, yeah, I mean, at the certain, at a certain point, that's true. But if we're looking at it from like a neurological adaptation standpoint, why don't you just do some heavy isometric holds? Where it's like, uh, there's a lot of like a lot of things that can be said for just unracking like 120% of your water at max and just holding it in your hand so you get used to it, right? And that's where I think a lot of the a lot of this comes into uh, comes into play is like if, with what bands and chains are are going to give you the ability to do is kind of like you were talking about super maximally load the movement itself and get you kind of more comfortable feeling heavier load so that everything else that you do afterwards feels lighter which is cool. But at the same point, why don't you just do some heavy isometric loads that are significantly less taxing, don't change the actual biomechanics of the movement and the, what you're actually looking to do and train, uh, change the, uh, the, 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 the position of the muscle that we're training to give you a very similar benefit. Sure. Um, the final, final thing in our sort of like tiers of variability to consider was variability in how we actually move rep to rep. And mm-hmm. you kind of, you alluded to this when you were talking about output training and how like, at absolute peak intensities or high efforts, things aren't always perfect and things don't always look the same. Yeah. Um, so how does that matter from a coaching perspective and how does that maybe matter from like a you know, health and injury perspective if it does? So what we're looking at with that is like the inherent variability in how people are going to move rep to rep. We're just looking at that in a way of, uh, in a, in a, under a lens of fatigue management, right? So if we've got somebody who has a super hingy squat and they're getting more hingy as they get more fatigued, we know that we're probably going to have to reduce a little bit of deadlift frequency or intensity as they're going through their training cycle, just because they're building up a lot of fatigue in their lower back while they're doing that anyway. So again, this is one of those things where what we're looking at in their, the, the variability rep to rep, I'm not necessarily looking at it as a way of um, telling people they shouldn't be doing things. We're looking at that as a data point that we can use to build a more accurate training cycle for a lifter. Sure. Is there potentially a case for, you know, say a lifter sort of starts to fall out of position after rep three, mm-hmm. would there be a case to cut that set off at three and maybe add a couple extra sets and sort of spread the volume out like that? And then that's a really interesting thing you can do with like cluster sets where you could just, if you notice, notice that a lifter is falling apart after the third rep consistently and you want them to do a set of five, you break it down into a three plus two where they get a 30 to 45 second rest to kind of collect themselves in between. Mm. Right, where they can still accumulate a little bit more volume at a higher intensity, but they can have more consistent quality in their reps in their reps that they're doing because they're not breaking down as easily as they were before. I think there's good, um, good answer, Kyle. <laughs> Kyle, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Kyle, you know who's going to hate that the most is Kyle, honestly. So, so I don't know if anybody knows this, but whenever I'm on a podcast, I actually have my phone on speakerphone, and Kyle is like in a little like like button in my ear or a little like like uh, like hearing aid in my ear, and he just tells me what to say whenever anybody asks me any questions. That's why I always wear my headphones. Is what's the one? Um, what's it's like the going one on a, Bruce like a, like Almighty. A, yes. Remember? Yeah. What's he do? He gets the teleprompter and makes the person say dumb shit. Is that Bruce Almighty? 
Yep, that was Bruce Almighty, where he just sits there and like waves his fingers and makes the guys just say stupid shit. That's what Kyle does with me every single time I'm on any podcast or on any call or anything like that. He's talking for me. That's unreal. Um, The other thing I was going to mention on that variability rep to rep thing is is like you'll see overt technical breakdown, but like but even in the reps that all kind of look the same, we don't actually do everything the same ever. Oh, not at all. And like you can feel that if you're a halfway decent lifter you'll probably do a set of squats and be like, man, you know, rep three and four, I really felt like I fell forward a little bit. And then you look at the video and you're like, oh, they look the same. But like, but they weren't. And like, you know, the amount of rotation of the hip that you have and like your weight distribution and, you know, how much extension you're getting in each segment of your spine and stuff is never actually the same, right? Mm -hmm. And to some degree, you will be exposed to variability just by trying to do the same thing because things aren't always the same. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's one of those things where like the, what I'm looking at with the lifter when I get something like that is I'm just going to ask them to kind of report how they're feeling through it. And if they're reporting it accurately, if they're saying like, Hey, reps three and four felt terrible on this one, this is what I felt. Okay, cool. We're just going to look at like what we can do to re- like to, to make or limit that as much as possible moving forward in the next rest of the training cycle. All right. You've mentioned a few times, um, a few times that it's not always bad to have like high degrees of specificity or to be lacking variability mm-hmm. in how we move, but also that there's times when it's desirable. And you spoke about like the need for direct and indirect transfer at different times. So when we think about like a periodized plan, um, how do I need for specificity and variability change? Specificity is going to have to increase significantly more as you approach a competition date, right? So if you're competing in anything, if we're like, I'll start adding in specificity for, for lifters, probably about 16 to 18 weeks out. Um, and then from there on, we just start increasing specificity through increasing frequency and increasing the, uh, the, the volume that they're going through towards the, uh, towards the peak and prep or the, throughout the rest of the prep. So for example, I'm actually working with, um, one of my guys right now is about 16, 14 weeks out of a meet now. And we just finished like kind of like a two week transition block where he was just kind of like reacquainting himself with some kind of movements or some kind of heavier load, because since powerlifting was basically canceled for the first half of 2020, we were just like, okay, well, let's just get huge and let's just get you as jacked as possible. So we spent as much time on the safety bar, on the trap bar as possible so that we could use higher intensities and a little bit more frequency to build up more tissue. But now that we're competing again towards the end of the year, we have to start slowly adding more uh, specificity in and we have to give that in a way where we can kind of limit the amount of load that they're going to use because if they've had a lot of indirect carryover or indirect transference by putting on muscle tissue and just packing on more, uh, packing on more meat, throughout the course of the off season, like we need to give them the ability to, to get into um, their prep and stay safe throughout their entire prep. So they don't just shoot themselves in the foot and like overshoot in, uh, in week six and peak early. All right. And that's kind of what we're looking to do in this is like, I'm looking at giving him like after, after we get through this, we're looking uh, the, the transition block, which is the last week. Now we're looking at increasing some specificity through increasing frequency and using some load limiting techniques like tempos, um, competition variations or things like that that are going to allow him to still drive high effort but not give him the ability to overshoot early and just absolute be like absolute load limiters as opposed to just be like okay cool you're 12 weeks out you get a three heavy singles every single week just go crush it and it's like okay cool i peaked in week six and i'm like i got 12 weeks to go until i meet and i feel like shit so like now what are we going to do that's when Alex renews the debit. Says, just trust the process, bro. Hey, perfect. Them. There we go. Yeah. Do you charge a year, like for just a year at a time? Yearly. Yearly. Year, yeah. Quarterannual, actually. Four year, exactly. Four year Olympic plans. <laughs> yeah. Week, week three, it'll feel like, oh, year three, it'll feel like it's all falling apart, but it comes good. Yeah. We, it we comes good do, in year four. We actually do swimming for the first 12 months. 
Oh, perfect. <laughs> perfect. Um, because after that, you're going to feel like, oh my God, I'm so strong now that I finally benched 100 kilos again. You know, the best thing is like Alex and I used to work at a gym and they did act. Um, where's he going? Right, right. Oh, he's still, still there. Uh, I'm still here. My computer literally just closed you. Um, nice. We worked at a gym. <laughs> I think it finally like figured out what you were. Like, I have the AI running being like, identify this thing. And it's like, oh shit, it's a potato. I'll just Oh it. God, we don't need to look at this one. <laughs> um, Get it yeah, off the screen. <laughs> we worked at this gym and they did aqua aerobics. And the best thing about aqua aerobics is they have the little weights for them to use in the water. But then the weights have fucking like floaty material on them. Yeah. I'm like, can you fucking make your mind up? Like, yeah. <laughs> so as soon as I go under, as soon as I go down, it's like we've got like a super maximal tricep extension, and I go to curl it, and it's like, oh, it's helping me on the way up. It's nice. Yeah, it's wild. Um, okay, couple of other quick questions. So when we are prescribing movements for the sake of variability, how much are we cueing people to do things differently, as opposed to just trying to pick movements that force them to do things differently? I'm not trying to cue anybody into whatever they're looking at doing. I'm trying to pick movements that allow them to do it on their own, especially since most of the people that I work with are remote. What I want to do is I want to pick things that are as easy as possible to do properly or to do the way that I want it to be done that just allow them to still express a high degree of effort because they don't actually have to think about it. Right. For example, like the one that I keep using is the example of a hack squat versus a, like a regular barbell squat. Like you don't have to think about doing a hack squat. You don't have to send me videos of you doing hack squats. Like I, pretty sure you're not going to mess that one up. You just sit down, stand up. Right. So like that, that's what we're looking at doing is we're, we're trying to pick movements that are better for a person. So they are able to um, just express a lot of effort without having to think about it at all, because that's the thing too, where if we're looking at the, the variability style training and we're looking at over cueing somebody, the more they have to think, the less their output, their total output is going to be in that particular movement. And the more sensory feedback and noise they're going to be getting, that actually shies them away from accumulating real work and accumulating some sort of an actual training effect. Wicked. So how, how important do you think variability is in building like resilient lifters and building people to resist injury? Resisting and becoming more anti-fragile, I think it's very important because now we're just starting to let the joints move through a greater range of motion total. So it's, it's again, like one of the, like the easiest example, again, that I'll keep going back to, um, is the difference between like a, like a, uh, like a bench and like a hook lying bench variation where people's back are totally flat. Right. If we're looking at this, like if they're, if we're fully eccentrically leveraging pecs the entire time, like a lot of times when you see pec tears, it's when they're starting, that's not on the eccentric. It's as they're starting to concentrically press. Right. So that pec is just not used to concentrate, like to contracting through a full range of motion, through a decent range of motion as we're going through this. So if we can spend a little bit of time doing something that's going to train the pecs in the shortened position, we may be able to build up a little bit more resilience because we're just starting to put on tissue in the shortened position and we're starting to reinforce the strength in that shortened position of the muscle, which is probably going to be a good thing for that lifter long term. And it's the same kind of thing with like the squat, like, like looking at quad, hamstring, or adductors, like strains and tears. Like we want to be able to give them the ability to drive their knees forward so that we can build more quad resilience and have that quad just be used to like loading a little bit more effectively. So would you say that like, cause on the one hand you've got, you could have people saying, well, like if all you do is the same shit, your risk of like repeated strain injuries is going to be really high. But on the other hand, there would be people who say, well, actually your body adapts to the stresses you put upon it. And so specific loading is going to get you really, really good at, at resisting those specific stresses and not getting hurt mm -hmm. is, is this one of those things where like 
the devil's in the dose to mix metaphors? Yeah, or? I would say so. I would say 100% the devil's in the dosage with this one. Like if you're, if like, I, it's, it's amazing the amount of lifters that I've had come to me who are who just like feel like shit because they're doing like 25 sets of deadlifts a week. And it's like, you're doing 25 sets of deadlifts a week. I'm not surprised you feel like shit. I'm surprised you're actually able to type this email out and like talk to me on a Zoom call. Um, so like, that's one of, the, one of the things I think for sure is like what you talked about with the devil being in the dosage. Like if we're writing out a good solid training program where we're managing load and volume over the course of a training cycle well and effectively, a lot of these issues probably won't really occur. But what we can do with the variability training is give them the ability, give them the ability to get stronger in positions that they don't have access to normally, which should allow them to leverage their output greater in their competition specific movements. Right. Because it's what, like, kind of like what we've like, Kyle has probably talked about this on your guys podcast anyway, where if you live at end range of motion extension, you can't extend any further. Right. So you just don't have the ability to extend or like leverage extension any more than you already have. So if we're looking at that in terms of like a powerlifting competition and you're trying to go for a one rep max and you're trying to leverage extension as much as you can, but you exist in end range extension, you're stuck. And that's as far as you're going to go. Whereas if we give you the ability to get neutral or kind of even like a flexed spine, you can now leverage extension much better because you don't live in that position at all times. Yeah. And I think somewhere in there you were talking about, um, you were talking about almost like simplifying thinking about things to a degree. And that was, that actually brings us to the last question. So we, we spoke like through this podcast about these ideas of specificity and variability and sort of about like analysis of what people are doing anatomically and how they're moving and shit. And I think that like there is this broad trend and it's the same when we talk to people about programming concepts and, you know, RPA and periodization models and all sorts of shit like that um, of thinking more analytically about training, mm-hmm. which is dope. Um, and so people are swinging from like very simplistic concepts of how we should train towards more complicated, you know, like methods of analysis and, and rigorous thinking about the training programming. Does that rigorous thinking necessarily mean that what goes on paper has to look enormously complicated? No, it's going to be very simple. Towards the end of the day, like the, the, what you, what, when, I'm, when I'm writing out a training program for somebody, like I want my, like, my lifters to look at it and go like, oh, that's all I'm doing? Like, okay. But the exercises that I've chosen are done in a way that are going to give them the best opportunity to succeed, to succeed at whatever we're looking at trying to get them to do. Right. So like, for example, if like you're, if I'm trying to get somebody from like a 270 kilo deadlift to a 300 kilo deadlift, that's the exact same training plan or the exact same thought that's going to go into it. If I'm trying to get somebody from a 50 to a 70 kilo deadlift, right? Like the level of thought is going to be the same on my end, but the execution for the lifter has to be super easy because if the execution is not easy, they're going to overthink everything that they're doing and they're probably not going to make the progress that we're looking to make. So I think it has to be simple. For sure. So it's almost like overloading someone with information becomes confusing. For sure. And like, that's one of those things where happens, like uh, it's what happens with every single coach and every single trainer when they take a new cool certification, you get information overload and you go like, okay, cool. I'm going to go do this with every single one of my clients from now on forever. This is all I do now. No, all my clients who are doing cool flying bench presses are going to have some words with me now. I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We're going to take a very quick break and then we're going to come back and hit Matt with the four questions that tell us everything that we need to know about a person. Welcome back. We're still here with Matt, a.k.a. Kyle, a.k.a. Potato. Yes, And uh, we're going to hit him with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. You ready, Matt? I'm ready to go. So he I hasn't haven't read prepared. any of these questions yeah, at he all. He hasn't looked, so this will be, be great. So question one, 
if you could take anyone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? Mike Tyson, 100%. Fuck, that was quick. That's a 100%. Good that's such a good answer as well. 100%. I, I, like, that's, that's a man that like, just listening to all of the interviews that I've ever heard with him or just listening to that dude, like that man is on a, that, that man's mentality is just so different than everybody else's is. And I would love to be able to pick, uh, like sit down and pick his brain and talk to him about like what got him to that point and how he became that way as a person. I think he's super fascinating and anybody who's at like a super high level and achieved tremendous things as a fighter has, is they're just not even the same species as the rest of us. And I think that that would be a fascinating conversation. Is his fight coming up in the next few days? No, it's uh, November. It's, oh. it's in November. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's it in November. September. I am so excited for that one. I'm going to pay-per-view it like, and just watch it on repeat. I'm going to record it and just do whatever I need to do. Did you listen to him on Joe Rogan recently? Yep. Yeah. Um, it was, yep. That was interesting because I don't care much for fighting. Like I've never yeah. really watched it much. Mike Tyson is somebody who I admire as an athlete quite a lot. Yeah. Um, he was a very, very interesting guy. And, but, you know, obviously they're trying to plug their fight and stuff right now. Mm-hmm. But apparently he's getting into pretty reasonably good condition for a dude who's like 53 or whatever. You watch the videos of Mike Tyson and he, like, the, of Mike Tyson now, and he looks better than he did when he was fighting when he was younger. Like, it's incredible. And that's what I'm talking about with like this athlete mindset where it's like he's, he flipped a switch and he's ready to go and he looks sharper and better than he did when he was like fighting in his 20s at 53 years old. It's like the dude looks really good. Yeah, the speed and power that he hits the bags, fucking incredible. Yes, at fifty three years old, it's I remember, insane. I remember when these videos first surfaced. Me and the boys were messaging about how much you would have to be paid to go in the ring with Tyson. Oh and God! <laughs> at first, at first, I was like, I'd do it for a million dollars. And then every video that came out, my price went up by a million dollars. Yep, that makes sense. Like, okay, I see another video. Okay, now it's two. Okay, now it's three. Okay, now it's four. It's probably yeah. like 40 now. How long yeah. do you reckon you could run away from him for into the ring? I mean, and that's the thing. Round? You got to think about like that dude's conditioning is going to be so much better than everybody else's who's stepping in there. Like you're not even going to be able to escape him for more than two minutes at a time because he's just going to cut you off and just destroy you at that point. It's like and you're screwed. Yeah, just when, he, the dick. when he attacks you, you, you want to just cover yourself and then you're fucked. And then you're screwed. You're yeah. done. It's game well, over. Do you cover your head or your ribs? It's like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You cover your head. He's going to break your ribs. You cover your ribs. He's going to knock you out. It's like, it's which one do you want? It's like, if I were to say to you, Hey, Will, I'm going to shoot you in the knee. Which one do you want me to shoot you in your right knee or your left knee? Like actually both, left, but that's, they I've both kind of suck. On. The left one's kind of more fucked. So like, yeah. I guess if we break it down further, like if you just cover your head and you just get the shit beaten out of your organs and your ribs. Like, is that worth $20 million? Probably. It probably is. Yeah. yeah. For me, you oh, know, definitely. <laughs> so I'm not saying I could take Mike Tyson on because I think it'd be rude for me to hurt a 53 year old, but I, um, I had a DEXA scan. I had a couple of DEXA scans done for these studies um, that were being run out of my old uni and my skull on the age matched T test came back 4.2 standard deviations above the mean. Oh my God. <laughs> so we're talking 99.999% of people have a thinner skull than me. So if anybody could cop just one right hook from Mike Tyson and not die. It'd be you. It might be me, except I've never be been you. punched in my life. So I definitely wouldn't want to put it. We got to get you training, man. These, the, the purse for this fight's like $40 million. We got to get you in the ring. Yeah, dog. Don't you remember when Homer Simpson <laughs> fought and he, his tactic was just absorb it all in his fat? Exactly. That'd be like me. I'd just be like Rocky, just getting smacked to the just head and I'm too shot dumb. Shot and just beat up. Yep. <laughs> All be right. good. We got question two coming up, Alex. 
So question two is who's your favorite athlete of all time? Oh, I mean, like I just answered that one with my question number one. So next question, please. Let's go. It's just like, like what I'm looking. So like what I'm looking at when like, I, I'm, I've always been a big fan of just watching sports and just watching athletes and like any of these, these like high, high, high people that like perform extremely at like extremely high levels in whatever their chosen sport is, they all have a common kind of theme, which is their mentality and their mindset. And like, I think that like, there's not much of a difference between like, people are just going to kind of gravitate to the sports that they're good at. But if you look at the difference between like the, in like the mentality between like Michael Phelps or like Lu Zhaojun, the Olympic lifter or like Mike Tyson, their mentalities are all very similar. And I think that's one of those things where like, if we're choosing a favorite athlete, like I'm choosing it based off a of personality. And I just think Tyson's got a dope personality too. What's your, um, what's your favorite sport? Uh, I used to be, I'm, I'm really big into like mixed martial arts and boxing. Okay. That makes yeah. sense then. Yeah. All yeah. right. Question three then is <laughs> which movie or television character do you most resemble? Oh man. Which, uh, Peter Griffin from family guy. Or Mr. Potato Head from Toy Story. Okay, fine. I am a potato. I get it. I understand. That's where it actually came from. Is like we were asked on a podcast, um, like what Toy Story character that we all recommend, we all uh, looked like, or we all were. Kyle was Woody because he's like long and tall and like kind of weak and flaily. Um, I was Mr. Potato Head because I've got these small arms and I'm fat. So I mean, that's what I would say for me. Uh, or Peter Griffin because I'm kind of fat and like sometimes I'm funny. There is no, nah, there is a cartoon character and it's really pissing me off. Like it, like in a Pixar movie recently, who has glasses and he's got chubby cheeks, and I'm trying to think of who it is. You call me um, fat? I said you have chubby cheeks, Ooh, man. I just man. that's youthful. That's not. If you want to, if you want to know the the one that I used to get compared to all the time, I used to get compared to. Um, you ever watch Back to the Future? Yeah, Biff. Oh Biff, yeah, is yeah, that yeah. Bully? he's the jock guy. Yeah, he's yeah. the jock bully. I used to get Biff from Back to the Future all the time. I like that. Yeah, that's yeah. good. All right, question four: Your life is being made into a montage, like movie style, and you get to choose the music that it's set to. What do you choose? Oh man, the music that it's going to be set to. That's one that like I'm I'm more of like a like a like a metalhead. Um, so that's probably what I'm going to pick is some kind of like a like a harder rock playlist. Okay, any like go to artists for you? Uh, I really like like, uh, the newer, bring me the horizon. I like some after the burial kind of stuff. So it's like, I, like, I would even like try to do it because like to reflect my personality, I would probably have like those hard hitting songs playing at like the softest times imaginable, just so the audience is just left confused and they have no idea what's going on and what they're actually watching and how they're supposed to feel at that given time. So it'd be like a video of me, like, like, like a scene of me, like petting one of my dogs or like cuddling my, my sick dog. And it'd be like, just like hardcore, like death metal screaming in the background. And it'd be like, I don't really know how to feel about this whole thing. I don't know what's going on. There's like, there's a degree of presumption in that, in that question that it's like retrospective, like after you're gone. So I think playing a prank on people is pretty funny. Something that, um, something that I always spoke about doing. And like, as I've told heaps of people about this when I die, is I want to get one of those memorial seats erected. You know, that I don't know if you guys have them in the States, but we always have them. They'll be like on a cliff top or something like overlooking <laughs> a beautiful view. And it's usually sad. It's usually like somebody committed suicide here and they put it there to remember them. But, so I don't want that. But I want like one that overlooks the ocean, like, you know, beautiful waves and whatever seat there. And then next to it, I want there to be like a little marble carving of my face. And then I wanted to say this chair was like erected in memory of Will Berkman, 1992 to 2020. He always wanted chiseled features. And I just think that was so funny. (laughs) Like, so your last job for today, 
Tell everybody listening where they can find you on the internet, how, how they can inquire for coaching and any other products you want to plug. So uh, you can find me on Instagram at Matt Domney. So it's at M-A-T-T-D-O-M-N-E-Y. Um, and our website is compoundperformance.com. That's where we host everything for remote coaching, for the group mentorship, and for everything else that we're looking to do. Sweet. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, man. Um, this has been Weekly Weights. I'm Will. This, um, what's your name? Yeah, I'm what's, what's your name, name again? Kyle. <laughs> <Sweet>. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk to you guys next week.